everyone, welcome to the Folio Podcast, where we talk to leaders, experts, and some very smart people in the architecture, engineering, and construction industry. We explore topics around and including FF&E, specification, procurement, building information modeling, and pretty much anything that makes the process just better. My name is Ingrid Velasquez-Woodley, and this podcast is brought to you by Folio. Folio is a product specification, procurement, and data management software for the AEC industry. With Folio, you can manage your budgeting, specification, purchasing, inventory, and product data processes from end-to-end. Go to folio.com and schedule your demo today. That's F-O-H-L-I-O.com. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Folio Podcast. This is a recorded webinar from Earth Day, so back in April, but we thought we'd still share it because sustainability is very much an evergreen topic and it's always going to be relevant. In this webinar, we are joined by several amazing panelists who very generously shared their time and expertise on best practices for specifying sustainable materials. Here we go. Hello, everyone. Happy Earth Day and welcome to today's webinar where we will be talking about best practices for specifying sustainable and healthy materials. My name is Ingrid Velasquez. I'm your host and also the Chief of Content and Marketing for Folio. So like we usually do during webinars, we're going to have our panelists present. And then we'll have a few minutes for questions and answers. And we actually have four panelists today and because we have a lot to cover let's just jump in go ahead and get started uh, so one reason we are all here today is because as builders and designers we're all trying to do our part to shape a sustainable future for the next generation um, according to the u.s green building council buildings are one of the heaviest consumers of natural resources and in the united states buildings account for more than a third of all co2 emissions and three quarters of electricity consumption. And green buildings, on the other hand, consume much less energy. And in fact, compared to the average commercial building, lead gold buildings will generally consume 25% less energy and 11% less water. Uh, it'll require 19% lower maintenance costs. That's good all around. Uh, that it, there will be 27% higher occupant satisfaction and it'll produce 34% lower greenhouse gas emissions. One very good thing that's come out of climate change awareness is that there's now a pretty strong market for sustainable buildings. And that's actually where our first panelist comes in. Kate Bachner is the founder of Wise Matter, a firm that consults on selecting healthy and sustainable products. That's a skill that a lot of homeowners and building owners are now searching for. And it's something that helps builders and designers distinguish themselves from the competition. Today, Kate is going to tell us all about what to look for when selecting products. Kate? Hold on. Hold on one moment. Just gonna share my screen. Okay. 
Sorry, guys. Okay. Okay, cool. Thanks, Ingrid. Thanks for the introduction. So to echo Ingrid, my name is Kate, and I'm the founder of Wise Matter. So Wise Matter is a building science consulting company specializing in healthy materials for residential homes. My scope ranges from structural materials to interior design materials. I assess building materials through the lens of human and ecological health. So I got into sustainable building because I love nature and I really love the concept of how space affects behavior. Before becoming a material consultant, I actually worked as a gallerist in New York City. And after becoming increasingly aware of pollution, ecological destruction and climate change, I decided to change career paths. So I, for this presentation, I'm going to focus on life cycle. For the most part, when people look at material health and sustainability, they, they think about materials that are installed in the home. And as Ingrid said, fortunately, more and more homeowners understand that the materials in their homes could undermine their health. And this is increasingly becoming a priority. However, I find that many do not understand that materials impact us in the environment outside of the home as well as inside. So as building professionals, it is important for us to understand this so that we can make better decisions to protect our clients and to protect the environment. So the below diagram illustrates the different phases of materials life cycle. For this presentation, I will concentrate on sourcing, manufacturing, use, and end of life phases. Keep in mind that though I use specific materials to illustrate a designated part of the life cycle, each phase of a materials life cycle is important. So for the source phase, I'm going to concentrate on the lungs of the earth, uh, AKA the forests. So forests give gives us one of the most timeless building materials, wood. I love wood. I love that we can live in homes made from trees. I love the warmth it brings. And I especially love that it connects our built environment with the natural environment. And it's clear that I'm not the only one who feels this way. Advancements in mass timber construction and stick frame homes have made wood a building material in high demand. And people extol wood for its sustainability, stating that it's a renewable resource However, it's only a renewable resource if we are stewards of the forests instead of mere takers. Enter FSC certification. FSC certification is the gold standard for responsible forestry. And when possible, everyone should purchase FSC wood. FSDC stands for Forest Stewardship Council and they have provided us with a guide for how to both harvest lumber and take care of its surrounding ecosystem. FSC certification protects our forests against practices such as clear cutting, the felling of old growth forests, monocropping, habitat destruction, and the use of toxic pesticides and fertilizers. So though the health of the forest seem really far away, their health directly impacts our health. 
For example, atrazine, most, one of the most common pesticides used in forest management is linked to birth defects. And this is so much so that European, the European Union, Union has banned the use of atrazine, but unfortunately in the United States, we still use it. So FSC certification teaches us how to be stewards of the forest. How could we nurture the forest as we nurture ourselves? FSC criteria prohibits harvesting or road construction in old growth forests. It requires forest management to incorporate plans to achieve species recovery goals. And it requires the protection of representative ecosystems. And this means that companies must set aside a sizable portion of forest for conserving biodiverse ecosystems. And this is only a few requirements for achieving FSC certification. And I just wanna talk about this. It's really close to my heart that Old growth forests have declined 30% since the 1900s and they are continuing to decline. You know, how devastating would it be if these gentle giants were to disappear? What if future generations were deprived from experiencing them? So, you know, it's important to feel, it's not all about facts and figures, it's also about heart and how we want to experience this planet and what kind of relationship we want to have. manufacturing. PVC is one of the most, oh, excuse me, PVC is also known as polyvinyl chloride. And it's a really good example of how a product's manufacturing process can have a deep impact on our air quality, water quality, and soil quality. PVC is one of the most pervasive building products on the market. However, it is unfortunately one of the most dangerous. 14 billion tons of PVC is produced per year in North America, and 75% of it is used in construction. It's used in resilient flooring, window frames, blinds, electric cables, carpet backing, to name a few. So what's wrong with PVC? Um, so not, not to get too sciencey, I promise, but PVC is what you'd call an organochlorine. And manufacturing organochlorines produce dioxins and other toxic waste. Dioxins are potent carcinogens and they do accumulate in the body. PVC on its own is pretty brittle. And so it needs a bunch of additives to make it flexible and stable. These include phthalates and heavy metals, both of which have been linked to endocrine disruption, neurological damage, and developmental problems. And manufacturing is also a social justice issue. Communities that live next to these factories experience elevated risks of cancer, asthma, and birth defects. Choose materials that have clean manufacturing Look for products that are bio-based, rapidly renewable, recyclable, and cradle-to-cradle -cradle certified. There are alternatives. For example, PVC flooring is not the only game in town. Linoleum and cork are great alternatives. 
a good linoleum product is made by forbofluorin systems ca called marmoleum. Marmoleum is made from linseed oil, wood flour, and jute. And forbo states that marmoleum is carbon neutral. Use. For the use section, I would like to address wet applied products, which include paints, stains, and adhesives. These products have a noticeable effect on indoor air, air quality. And one of the major things to look for when selecting wet applied products is its VOC content, also known as volatile organic compounds. VOCs have a low boiling point and turn into a gas at room temperature. They're linked to headaches, memory loss, nausea, asthma, and immune impairments in children. Select products that are water-based and have a low to zero VOC content. You could find a product's VOC content on either the product's te technical data sheet or safety data sheet. For paints, check out mineral paints. They are naturally mold resistant and they really create a warm, tranquil feel in the home. Select applied products with third-party certifications such as GreenGuard Gold and Redless Free Declare label, as well as products that comply with the California Department of Public Health and the South Coast Air Quality Management District. As a side note, for a chemical to count as a VOC, it needs to cause smog. If the chemical is not considered to cause smog, then it is not counted in the total VOC content. However, there are still dangerous VOCs. Ask the manufacturer if the product contains exempt VOCs. If it does, then the VOC content is higher than what the label states it is. This is why it is so important to choose products with third-party certifications. It lets you know that products have been assessed for chemicals of concern. End of life. Insulation is so important for energy conservation and thermal comfort. Whenever you see a net zero home, you know that insulation is one of the primary materials to thank. But with that said, insulation is one of those building materials that exists on a wide sustainability spectrum. Foam insulation, though quite effective, is something that needs to change. One of the primary reasons is because it contains toxic halogenated flame retardants. Halogenated flame retardants are synthetic compounds which nature is not able to process. They are persistent bioaccumulative toxins. They do not break down and remain in the environment indefinitely. They are associated with cancer, endocrine disruption, neurological damage, and developmental problems in children. They are detected in nearly all Americans. Animals at the top of the food chain generally have the highest concentration of halogenated flame retardants. Flame retardants migrate out of foam insulation. This happens in landfills, job sites, and as, we, as we've seen most recently, during fires. So ironically, the protection that flame retardants afford us during a fire is negligible. And we must do everything in our power to avoid foam insulation that contain toxic flame retardants. And fortunately, there are really good alternatives. 
Choose insulation that are chemically benign and have a high recycled content. Mineral wool, cellulose, denim bat, and formaldehyde free fiberglass are some types to turn to. Insulation such as mineral has a great R value and acoustic properties. In the design phase, it is important to consider what should be done to eliminate the use of foam insulation as much as possible. Many projects have been able to accomplish, accomplish this. And as participants, our purchases have power. And if companies are going to go through the, whole, the process of innovating healthier options, we need to support them through our purchases. I wanna to touch briefly on the certifications I mentioned in my presentation. Declare Redless Free Label. And this, this label was created by the International Living Future Institute, which oversees probably the toughest green building certification system out there called the Living Building Challenge. For a product to be redless free, it cannot contain any of the 800 chemicals that ILFI has deemed toxic. Green Guard. I mentioned Green Guard when I was talking about VOCs, as well as the actually the Red List Declare Free label. Uh, Green Guard is a great certification for wet applied products. It tests products for specific chemicals of concern and emissions levels instead of just the total VOC content. Products with Green Guard Gold meet tougher standards than just the regular Green Guard certification. And uh, obviously, I really nailed in FSC certification, what that is. Um, and the, the last one is cradle to cradle. And that's you know a good tool during um, the manufacturing process um, or to determine products that are linked to the pollution that occurs during manufacturing. And cradle to cradle is based on the work of William McDonough and Michael Browngart. Their groundbreaking book, Cradle to Cradle, Remaking the Way We Make Things, discusses the importance of not simply recycling materials, but upcycling them so that they can be continuously used, thus avoiding the landfill. A product can be Cradle to Cradle certified or material health certified. And in order to be Cradle to Cradle certified, a product must meet standards in five categories, including material health, material reutilization, renewable energy and carbon management, water stewardship, and social uh, fairness. Lastly, I wanna honor Earth Day and I wanna emphasize that we are intimately connected to the natural world and the materials that harm the environment harm us. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you very much for that very enlightening presentation, Kate. Um, so do pardon me if uh, I'm kind of having to rush through everything because we have a lot of things to cover today, like I said. But um, quick reminder that you can leave your questions in um, that little box down below so we can answer everything as soon as everybody is um, done presenting. So. Up next, we have Jack Denning. He is a designer, researcher, and material health and sustainability strategist working with Brightworks Sustainability and Harvard University's Office for Sustainability. 
Having begun an architectural practice and understanding the impact that toxic materials can have on vulnerable populations, he now works to create tools and strategies that will empower fellow designers and drive collective progress in the industry. He has also, uh, he has also led educational initiatives with the Healthy Materials Lab at Parsons School of Design and continues to co-lead the, uh, the Mindful Materials Education Working Group. His work has earned recognition, including an invitation to the United Nations Global Compact Leaders Summit, the Alpha Rho Chi Medal for Leadership and Professional Merit, and election to the inaugural class of AIA New York's Civic Leadership Program. So today, Jack will be showing us how to build a healthier and more sustainable materials library. Jeff, can't wait. Thanks, Ingrid. Um, so let me just start sharing screens. Okay, is that coming up? Yes. We're seeing the library, okay. Um, so I actually wanna start um, with one of the, quotes Kate had said about it's important to it's really important to feel and to not just be considered considering the the metrics and the standards or the facts and figures that go behind this um because I think so much about what uh what sustainability comes to in practice when we're thinking about it is all these documents and reports and at the end of the day it's like I'm I'm speaking mostly to designers too in this but that like materials it's not just going to be, you're not going to be compelled by the thumbnail image on the screen or the data points, but you really want to understand materials at that visceral level where you're getting your hands on them. Um, so in this, today I'll show some of the, um, the work we did at Parsons Healthier Materials Library of bringing these kind of sustainability criteria into then the physical setting and how we can start to understand materials, um, both bridging the kind of physical space and the quantitative metrics that are in all these wonderful digital libraries. Um, so the, the goal too is, or the, um, hopeful takeaway is being able to optimize material libraries. So whether it's at your firm or you're managing things, um, even for yourself, but if there's some major goals that we're trying to do of first, just curating your libraries to, um, to eliminate some of the toxic, toxic materials and towards healthier ones, uh, but then also find ways of communicating these attributes to the users or to designers who are using the library. And then also find uh, make sure this whatever process or policies that you're instituting are um, are maintainable or sustainable, so you're not kind of biting off more than you can chew in, in setting up criteria for this program. Um, and it kind of goes back to like Kate mentioned a lot of different things that uh, qualify for or that go into what makes a healthy material. So if we can start by really saying by by defining this or defining all the things that it might be. Um, so from the library standpoint, when we were trying to define this, a really helpful base was just to say, what is our minimum criteria? And what are the things that we really want to avoid? So again, like Kate mentioned, really not the, some of the worst in class materials. So if we can avoid PVC, avoid vinyl products, that was really where our library started. And then also saying we need to require transparency. So require those HPDs or declare labels, because if we don't know what's in the product, we really don't know much at all. Um, so then being able to set some category specific criteria. So if we're looking at composite wood products, things like being FSC certified or uh, for a health perspective, no added formaldehyde. 
And it can become, um, I will say the category specific criteria can become uh, a lot just because there are so many different categories of materials, but it can also really help become targeted to the, the specific material concerns. Um, so looking at one wonderful example of precedent that we learned from uh, ZGF's Green Dot Library uh, or Green Dot program. So essentially they just set up this kind of minimum criteria of things like it needs to have um, transparency. So again, these, these labels and minimum thresholds to certifications like Kate showed of cradle to cradle or declares living uh, this breadless free or living product challenge. And then also finding um, just optimal product types. So if we know that generally things like linoleum are better than rubber, are better than vinyl when it comes to flooring, um, then these kinds of things can qualify for generally what makes a healthier material. And so they were able to just really just put small green stickers on products in the library that were able to designate that they were better. And it's a really simple system then of then just being able to separate the better from the, the worse. Um, but of course, it's more than a binary too. So looking at a second precedent of Perkins and Will um, in the library system they, where they first started in Austin, but kind of separating this binary into more categories of a, a good, better, best type framework. So of uh, a good product that kind of has avoid some of the basic chemicals, six major chemicals to um, a better that uh, avoids kind of everything on what they've defined as their precautionary list to the best. It's really avoiding all benchmark level one type chemicals. And then also putting a couple of labels on there too for products that they have vetted and want to avoid. Um, so instead of just eliminating them from the library, there might also be a reason to keep them with that cautionary sticker so that when someone wants to use that product, they it's, it's not that just there's no information on it, but that you have information and you're telling them it's probably not a good idea um, so then orange, which is really just we, um, for products that haven't yet been vetted. So we sort of set up a, what we call the purgatory in our library for this hundreds and hundreds of materials that weren't yet determined whether they were good or bad. Um, but just for, for process, it can help. So then that was sort of the first basis of our framework, this good, better, best type system. And not just having sort of single benchmarks or single categories, but looking at it in terms of transparency, optimization, so the, the chemical avoidance or hazard avoidance and emissions, um, because there's some things that maybe it's the best in terms of transparency, like it's fully disclosed, but it's disclosing that all the chemicals in it are bad. Or there's things that are fully, that have really optimized all their ingredients, but they're opaque and they're not telling you what's inside them. Um, so there's sort of these trade-offs and not, so things aren't good, better, best across the board. So trying to define the different things that we want manufacturers to be optimizing in all categories. Um, so we're at that point and we, we started really focused on health, but then there's all these other considerations too when we think about what health means from the, not just the, the personal or occupant scale, but the, really the global scale. So also the environmental impacts um, and the implications on health to so climate change, to resource renewability and implications of social justice. Um, so there's all these different things that we're trying to keep track of. And so what we were doing is we started saying, what are the different certifications that are out there? Um, Kate mentioned a few, but there's also something like 600 different green material certifications. Uh, and a lot of them will claim that like this, this guarantees health and safety, but then they're really just evaluating emissions or something. So we wanted to really define what it is any of these certifications meant. Um, and I will say, so in the process of doing that, 
I had the good fortune of uh, meeting Jeff Ross at Brightworks Sustainability, who was working on a scoring tool that, um, that was, again, using these kinds of holistic categories, which then gave context to what these, um, where these different certifications actually fit into the scheme. So from HBDs and the Claire labels being about health to other products uh, or certifications being uh, more waste auditing or about social justice or circularity. So it kind of gave context to everything, but also in a really actionable way that would score products. So it made it so that you could have an impression of how good or bad it was from a holistic level or compare them against each other. Um, and the beauty of it was it wasn't just these high level categories, but also expanded into more and more detail. So you could start by maybe seeing this total overall score and get a high level impression of it. Then you could break down into the further categories to then really saying, well, how's its transparency doing? How are its VOC emissions? And go into as much detail really as you wanted. But so this was actionable to someone who was just getting started and just wanted to use these total scores, but also for all the material nerds out there like us to be able to really get into the weeds of it and identify all these endpoints that we're really trying to scrutinize. Um, so this kind of a holistic picture of it really painted the scene of seeing, we wanna incorporate issues of material health, carbon, circularity, water, waste, and social equity, and setting it up in this kind of uh, hierarchical way that you could start by seeing like a really high level understanding and break it down into further and further categories. So you can both see how these um, more nuanced factors ultimately fit into this overall understanding and vice versa, how the understanding is informed by all these small details. So with this framework in mind, then going into how do we actually communicate this and impl implement this in the library? So of course, the first thing we did was make this giant six foot billboard size um, signage of the, the wheel that we were developing. And it does spin, so I know that's the question we always get. Uh, but I think it, it, it you might not need to make a six foot tall one, but it, anyone who walked into this library, it was blatantly apparent what our goals were. And I think just being able to define the mission and what you're trying to achieve can be half the battle. Um, so making signage really clear, both from a, a mission-based standpoint, but also just because we need more quick reference material when we're doing this. We mentioned so many different considerations already today. So to be able to have these kinds of resources immediately available in the places where you're doing evaluations um, just becomes really easy to think, or really helpful. So we're not expecting designers to memorize all of this. And of course, supplementing this kind of um, high-level signage to then the more detailed guides. So on Healthy Materials Lab's website, we've developed um, category-specific guides to each of these that really then break down more of the issues, the strategies, the resources that are available. Um, and of course, then how do we actually label products in this way? So labeling for if there's any material library managers out there, I know this is one of the, um, the Achilles heels of trying to define how it is or what goes on the label. Because you can see we had so much information and metrics that we could have put on this, this material label. Um, and a lot of the uh, other labels out there really do go into a ton of detail on this. But we kind of took the standpoint that the label really just needs to be a first impression. So if we can give people an overall understanding of what this material is doing, and then kind of the general category scores, that means that the first point of contact when you're just looking at materials in the library, you can start to see how they compare against each other and just separate the, separate the, the wheat from the chaff of just like, 
you know what? I'm not making a definitive decision based on the score, but let's at least define which ones are going to be better. And then the really key part of having this QR code so that this um, high-level information could then link to all those detailed documents in the source documents. Um, so for us, we were linking this back to the Mindful Materials Library because they establish uh, a, what do you call it, a, a stable link or URL for every given product. Because I know manufacturers are constantly updating product pages um, and it's by the time you've labeled something, odds are that that link is then out of date. Um, and Mindful Materials is also great in how it consolidates all these different certifications. So we would link people back to this source and then eventually Brightside or the, the scoring tool, um, that information should show up in here too. So then looking at how we scale this, implement this across a whole library of products or beyond, again, any good system is gonna have to start with good data. And again, Mindful Materials has been amazing as being a collaborative organization where so many I mean, there, there's more than 80 organizations, I think, involved in this that are helping to curate data and continuously put it in and keep this data live and up to date um, so that you're not having to manage it yourself. And so we were then using a sort of sister tool of this called Matter that is basically the Mindful Materials Library, but in this kind of platform that you can then manage, um, manage your own library within there. So you can add products to your personal library and kind of organize it based on folders um, and again, like I said, there are, there's plans of including this kind of scoring system in here too. So it becomes a really actionable tool for users. But one of the great functions in terms of scanning a library is the simple export. So from being able to take all the products in your library and export both the product information and all that sustainability data and scoring metrics and do a simple convert that to a CSV to then importing it into our InDesign templates um, with this nifty little function called data merge, which I didn't know existed, but just by setting up this template and the kind of endpoints that you're hoping to have, you then pre-populate all of our labels. So very quickly, we were able to download all this information that had been populated by really hundreds and hundreds of people over time to then really have this information directly on our labels. And pretty soon we had printed out um, 3,000 of these in our library. So it became pretty relatively quick to be able to put all this information directly on the products. I think this has been something, I, I bring up this, the technical details of this process because it really has been one of the challenges that material librarians say is often the hardest part. It's not only introducing the systems, but it's maintaining them because this data really is changing so rapidly. So to be able to have really simple tools that kind of communicate those, um, the most important things, but not putting so much on there that it's going to become out of date and relying on then websites or things that can be more dynamic um, to, to be the source for this information. So just a quick reflection and recap of how all of these things can come together. So I think I definitely recommend trying to find a balance in these different points of um, when you're defining criteria that it's not too ambitious, that it's then not gonna be maintainable. Um, and really trying to find just a, a system that really works for you and your, your library, your firm, which really gets into definitely recommend trying to involve firm leadership and make this really a mission-based initiative. So it's not all falling on the shoulders of whoever the material librarian or whoever the champions are in the firm that are doing the material health work, but really ingrained it into the culture of the firm. Um, so again, that's why like this, this big signage and everything was really about making it mission-based and not just 
technical tools. And then lastly, just really um, embracing that collaboration because we definitely couldn't have done nearly, well, basically any of this if it weren't for all the amazing partners that uh, had come before from the, the Perkins and Wales and ZGFs that I showed, just all the other collaborators that have worked together, together on this. So it's again, great to be on this call today to, to have so many others that are working towards this and just really encourage more collaboration and sharing and, um, and working together on this going forward. All right, fun. thank you very much, Jack. Um, real quick, I was really looking forward to your presentation because um, as most of you know, you know, material libraries are our jam, it's what we do. Um, so I think um, we're gonna do a follow-up to how to implement that in your own folio library. So watch out for that. Uh, so up next, we do have our very own Esteban Reichberg. He is one of Folio's board advisors and recent founder and principal of EAR Architecture. Congratulations, Esteban. Uh, Esteban earned his bachelor's from Cornell University and his master's from Columbia University. He has received awards from the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute, the U.S. Swiss Embassy, the American Institute of Architects, and most recently, his project won an award from the Society of American Registered Architects. Esteban is going to teach us about sustainable practices for meeting USGBC and NYC requirements. Esteban. Thank you, Ingrid. Can you hear me? Yes, absolutely. All right, um, I'll keep it brief. We had such excellent presenters. It's good to see uh, Jack. I know Jack, it's good to see you and, and Kate and Dijon, it's nice to meet you. Happy Earth Day, everybody. I wanna share my screen quickly. Uh, can I do that? Ingrid here, I get a pop-up window. Absolutely, yes. Okay, I see. Um, let's see, I'm gonna do a very quick uh, overview, if you will, of the uh, most popular benchmarks, I'll say in New York City for meeting green standards. I do not know the extent to which all the participants on this call are either LEED accredited, are familiar with the Living Building Challenge, with well um, accreditation certification and passive house. So I'm just gonna do a, a broad stroke, here we go. So the US Green Building Standards, <coughs> um, USGBC has LEED, which is Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. Uh, on my screen, you'll see their rating system here. So you have to hit 40 points basically to have a LEED certified building. Individuals are LEED accredited, buildings are certified. When you break 50 points, you get silver, 60 gold, and then platinum 80. I've had the privilege of working on lead platinum, gold, and silver uh, buildings here in New York City uh, of all different sizes, multifamily housing, institutional, commercial, and medical. Um, I'm gonna just quickly br brush through this. If you are already a lead accredited professional, I guess you can zone out, but if you're not, there are five tiers. The most popular ones you'll see here in New York are actually um, LEED, um, it's an advanced professional in building design and construction, the BDNC, and the interior design and construction, IDNC. Those two I come across all the time in, in New York. Uh, I suspect other major metropolises also have those two in common. LEED homes at the bottom is residential, and right above it, you'll see uh, LEED neighborhood development, which my friends in Ohio, 
uh, in Cleveland and, and other exurban environments often have when you do plan development projects. Operations and maintenance, I'm the least familiar with, but I, uh, I would assume it's the individuals that are in charge of uh, maintaining these facilities. So brushing through, if you don't know already, the differences between these things, before you get any building certified, you must meet the prerequisites. So this is something people who haven't done projects uh, don't know, and it's, uh, it's the step one, if you will. And sometimes people don't recognize that these prerequisites, like indoor air quality, like the material contents that we recently discussed and the limits therein, uh, are non-negotiable. Credits thereafter are negotiable, meaning you can pick and choose from different buckets to get the, the uh, number of points. Um, and then... <clears throat> and then, um, sorry, I, I just got a message, I got distracted. And then the checklists that you meet are also online on this website. So I'm brushing through here very quickly. Um, if there are comments, am I missing a comment here? Oh. So I wanted to quickly jump out of lead and talk about, these are the resources, they're all available online, and talk about some of the other things that uh, you might have brushed. The Living Building, Living Futures Institute, which does the Living Building Challenge, is, I would say, more stringent. It's less common here in New York. It's, uh, you'll find it in the West Coast, in, in the uh, Southwest, and hopefully here soon. Um, this website, I think, is excellent for giving those who are interested in pursuing a more rigorous benchmark. Uh, every tool and resource available. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip straight to the resources down here. You can actually, if you're interested, download what the Living Building Challenge standards are and the requirements, just like Lee, there are prerequisites and then there are credits, swappable credits. The well, um, well certification, I'm gonna lead to Jack. I know he's a well certified professional. I mean, Jack can maybe talk about this after I'm done. I am not well, and I have not done a well project, so I know less about it, but I want everyone to know what the kind of overlap is, which is why I'm doing a broad stroke. Passive House has two branches. There's the US Passive House, uh, and then we have Passive House Institute over here. There are some major similarities and overlap. Um, I'm, one was born out of Chicago and one went international. Um, but I wanted to, I'm gonna jump back in my tabs here and talk about where these things come together. Basically, We'll talk about, for the sake of architects and designers, envelope efficiency. This is something that all of these standards, whether you're dealing with LEED, whether you're dealing with WELL, whether it's passive house, and whether it's living building, the fact that your envelope must be efficient, what I call uh, the puffy jacket of the building, and the fact that there is um, some effort to not just reduce the carbon emissions by reducing the amount of heating and cooling, but actually reduce air leakage in general. I'll get, we'll get to that in the next slide, but I, I just wanted to show, and I think I had a slide in my presentation here, and this is where I'm ending. I'm ending with basically New York's, the New York City, New York Energy Conservation Code of 2020, which just came out exactly uh, May during the pandemic of last year, and which we are all uh, adapting this year. And we're gonna meet uh, the local law 97. I'm not gonna get into New York City specifics, which actually reduces all of carbon emissions of all of New York City's big biggest buildings. Uh, it's going into, into effect in 2024. So that's gonna transform the entire ground of this city 
and the mandates therein are, are pretty substantial. You're looking at a residential slide where we're talking about duct placement. This just brings home my envelope efficiency point for architects. Um, and at the end here, I think after passive house, I did get to the materials. So for those who've done multifamily housing, the enterprise green communities criteria, which is, has an overlay with lead is another very popular one here on the East Coast. And actually it's on the West Coast now. Um, this is used if you do projects with low income housing tax credits in the United States. And number six materials goes deep, has a deep dive into their rationale, their requirements. And you'll see a lot of the same lingo from the other benchmarks where we have health product declarations, which are a cornerstone of what is inside your materials. I'll lead it to the other experts on the panel to talk about the material content since that's not my forte, although I'm constantly, always dealing with uh, health product declarations. Um, and if you are a New Yorker, the Green Building Council here in New York has all the information you need, which I just kind of reviewed and how it overlaps with uh, how each benchmarking credentialing um, overlaps with one another. I just wanted to end with this uh, 2024 local law 97 citywide carbon emission reduction. It's going to, like I said, fundamentally transform how we build and design in New York. So people are preparing now and you have to comply. There are no, it's not a if, ands or buts thing. So um, I'll end with that Earth Day, that somewhat ominous Earth Day uh, future for New York and maybe other cities will adapt it as well. All right. Well, thank you very much, Esteban. Again, as usual, very, very packed with super important information. Um, all right. So very quickly, let's jump right to our last panelist. Um, last but not least, we have Dayan Vriljic. Am I saying that right or am I butchering it? I apologize. Um, oh, so good. You got he, it. Thank you. So he's a product expert for Metrics. Uh, a manufacturer of solar panels and cladding, um, among other things. So what I wanted to hear from him was about, um, you know, usually um, sustainable materials are a lot more or just more expensive than um, regular products. So um, Dan's passion for renewable technology solutions is what led him to join Metrics and our webinar today. And he will be talking about what hot and new in solar energy solutions. So, Dan. Thanks, Ingrid. All right, can you guys uh, see my screen there? Yes. Perfect. All right, thanks everyone for joining us today. Happy Earth Day. Uh, so I'm really excited to introduce you all to Mitrix, who we are, what we're doing, and how we plan on changing the urban landscape moving forward. Uh, we as a company, we have a long history of over 25 years in the construction industry in facade design. We're a developer and manufacturer of a wide range of integrated solar solutions, such as cladding, solar windows, solar railings, that are all cost-effective, rapidly manufactured, with no design limitations. So let's get started. Our vision is the integration of solar technology into everything around us. And our mission is to be the catalyst that accelerates the adoption of sustainable and energy generating human made structures. So taking a look at New York City in this picture here, 
and all the buildings that are currently basking in the light of the sun, all of these buildings not only use a lot of energy, but they don't produce any of their own. So humanity is currently constructing the equivalent of New York City globally every month to meet up with our population demands. Now, imagine if every new building could power itself rather than increase the burden on our traditional energy infrastructure. So we believe the rapid, low-cost, sustainable technology is not only viable, but it's the path forward for a brighter future for humanity. I think that we're all familiar with some of the pain points that can be associated with construction. Like we were saying, high-rise buildings could significantly contribute to energy consumption. Construction of them can be expensive and complicated, particularly when heavy machinery is involved. And building degradation can be an eyesore for neighborhoods. And then looking bigger picture, humanity is overly dependent on fossil fuels. Now, this isn't a North American problem or a European problem or an Asian problem. This is humanity's problem, and we all have to find a way to solve it because fossil fuels are not only rapidly accelerating climate change, but they simply won't be around forever. Now, renewable energy has been around for a while, but its adoption has been hampered by three things. So poor aesthetics, high price, and slow production. Matrix solves all of these problems and we do it through integration. So if everybody thinks back to 15 years ago or so, uh, and you'll remember people used to walk around with a cell phone in their pockets, maybe a digital camera, maybe an electronic pocket organizer. These were all basic products. They weren't solutions until this guy in a black turtleneck came along and he gave us this thing, an integrated solution. So this is, this is how Matrix sees ourselves as well. So we're not just construction, we're not just cladding or solar panels, we are all of these things and far more integrated together. So this presentation focuses on building integrated solar technology complemented by our cladding expertise. But because of advancements in PV technology, we're at a point where solar energy can be generated by every surface touched by the sun. And we as a company are moving towards serving all of the markets that you see on our roadmap there. Now, as I mentioned, we believe every surface touched by the sun can generate electricity and our solar is suitable for each surface that you see in this picture on the left there. So we are the largest BIPV firm in the world in terms of capacity, standards and market served. We have already invested heavily into R&D, approximately 150 million for developing our technology. And we're always looking for new ways to contribute to greener cities. So why not have solar stadiums or solar hospitals or solar sidewalks? Our desired city isn't just possible, it's necessary. And then if you think about the problems that I mentioned about renewable energy so far, and look at the triangle on the right there, that's our way of thinking and at the core of everything we do. So solar buildings can and should be beautiful. Construction can and should be quick and easy. And a building owner shouldn't have to blow their budget to have a sustainable building. Now, looking at our technology, our technology has three layers. So starting with the solar rail, a solar cell is sandwiched in between two layers of customizable tempered glass. And for our cladding, a solar cell is sandwiched in between an aluminum honeycomb plate and a layer of completely customizable, UV-stable, anti-soiling, fade-resistant, and anti-reflective tempered glass. This design allows the cladding to be lightweight and incredibly strong, and it allows it to function as the exterior facade of the building as well as generating solar energy. So it is both the exterior facade and a solar panel at the same time. And we cover all four vertical walls. Now this might be the slide that you've all been waiting for when I say uh, 
when you're wondering what I'm talking about here and what our clotting looks like. As I mentioned, our clotting is fully customizable and we mean fully customizable. So we can adhere to any color pattern design, including brand colors and logos, giving clients and architects total flexibility. So in the past, architects have had to get really creative with how they integrate solar panels into a building design, as I'm sure a lot of you are aware, uh, because solar panels might not be the best looking material. Well, we've completely eliminated this hurdle. So our cladding works around the building design, not the other way around. And then as you see here, our solar rail comes again, like I said, in a variety of options in terms of color and transparency. Now, I'm no architect myself, but what I can tell you from this slide is that both our solar rail and our cladding can integrate into a building in a variety of ways, with all wiring being completely invisible. So depending on a building's design and needs, we work with the architect or the engineer to come up with different ways, including Z-clips or anchor plates or interlocking channels for the cladding to integrate into the design. And our cladding is a ventilated rain screen system. Now, like I mentioned, one of the best parts about Matrix is that we seamlessly integrate into the building. So if somebody were to walk by a Matrix building, they would have no idea that it's powering itself. All wiring is invisible and we hardly take up any extra room in the building, typically sharing the same room as the utility. Now, in terms of lead, Matrix is able to help both new builds and retrofits get high levels of lead certification. So our ventilated rain screen cladding system can achieve an R value of 25 or higher, depending on the owner's needs, improving both the thermal and acoustic comfort of the occupants inside. And our solar BIP materials generate significant on-site energy that's renewable as well as being completely recyclable. Now, when I talk about integration, our services are included in that integration. So from the moment a client send us, sends us their plans and drawings, we can tell them exactly how much electricity a building will generate based on its location, its elevations, the color of cladding, future bills in the area, other shading in the area, et cetera. And we handle everything from the blue skin out as a company. So the blue skin, the insulation, which we do mineral insulation as well, I should add, uh, the wiring, the cladding, the caulking, the setup of the system, we handle everything from A to Z. And because our system and services are comprehensive, clients only deal with us. Now, in terms of purchase options, we have two, and each has their own philosophy, and with our goal being the accelerated adoption of solar, regardless of an end user's budget. Both include our turnkey service from the moment we get drawings until the cladding is completed. So looking at the Matrix Power Agreement option first, or MPA, what we've done here is we found a way to allow building owners to introduce sustainable energy without having to blow their budget on the building. So we will sell the system to the owner at a below market price. And what I mean by below market is it will cost less than them cladding the building in traditional materials like precast or ACM. And then in turn, Matrix owns the electricity being generated by the building over a 30-year contract, selling it back to the owner again at a below market price. So always at a lower cost than the utility. Now, a building owner might be thinking to themselves, well, that's great, but we'd much rather own the electricity being produced ourselves, in which case we would proceed with our direct purchase agreement. 
they would buy the system, spend a little bit more to own all the electricity being generated, but then in turn, they would realize the higher ROI and the shorter payback period of the system. Just looking at a brief uh, case analysis for uh, one of our projects quickly first. So our, like I said, our MPA option has a instant payback period. So looking at 100,000 square feet of cladding in Ontario, so priced at approximately $65 per square foot for traditional materials like ACM or precast, our MPA option is actually $20 per square foot cheaper than the average market price. So an owner would save $2 million on that project for 100,000 square feet of cladding going with the MPA option. And then they get all the benefits of the rain screen system and the on-site uh, renewable energy. Like I mentioned for the DPA, it is a bit of a higher investment up front. So an additional $15 per square foot or $1.5 million in total. But then in turn, they would realize an ROI of 320% with a payback period of nine years. Now, either way, either option is going to convert the building facade from a sunken cost into a passive revenue generator, while also offering the great ROI, the beautiful building design, and Matrix full turnkey service. And now, just switching gears briefly to our residential roof solar solutions, these are options that we have available currently for pre-order at our website. So. The great thing about these products is that they're installed and function the exact same way as traditional solar panels with the added benefit of having the same coating that we have on our cladding that allows them to be uh, to have these different color options that you see here and to essentially be self-cleaning. So the anti-soiling coating uh, that is on our high-rise products is the same on our solar residential. The output of these panels is approximately 400 watts per panel. And like I said, they function the exact same way as standard. So any properly licensed installer can install them. These are just some of the options that we are currently or soon to be offering. As I mentioned, we're constantly investing in R&D. We're always looking to introduce new products to the market that can contribute to greener cities. If I haven't mentioned it already, we're a proudly Canadian company. All of our products are manufactured in-house at our Toronto headquarters. Now, I like to end here. I've spoken a lot about why Matrix makes financial sense, but we also do this because we're a purpose-driven company. We do want to make the world a better place. And I think the information on this slide and the impact of effective sustainable energy really speaks for itself. So looking at just your typical high-rise building over a 30-year period, with Matrix Solar, it can actually produce the equivalent of 6 million trees being planted. All right, that concludes uh, my presentation. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you very, very much for your presentation, Dan. I learned a lot. Um, it's nice to know that we have options that are, um, you know, not as expensive as what's typical, and you know, it actually makes more sense in the long run. Unfortunately, we are right at the wire, um, so. Um, I'll just go ahead and read out one of the questions here. It's not actually a question, it's a comment, but I'll turn it into a question because uh, that's how I roll. Um, so Deborah Bulo says, thank you for highlighting PVC. I've been battling against it for a while and seem to meet no one else interested in this discussion. Um, is this a common thing? And if so, why is that? Are, are any, um, Kate, would you like to take this on since you discussed it? in sure so is the question why 
is the question why isn't why aren't people taking on PVC as a problem? Yes, I would say why aren't more people discussing it? Sure, I think it's because it's really cheap. It's it's very cheap, and um, you know, I worked with a client actually who was a chiropractor, and he worked in a joint office with other you know, other people, and he was working really hard to replace the PVC flooring. And, you know, I spoke with the woman, the, I guess the, the building manager, and we, I tried to convince her to uh, switch flooring, and she wouldn't do it because of, you know, of price that the PVC made, made a lot of sense because of price. Um, and I, I think that it, I think that if it's not, the, the reason why in my presentation that I, you know, focused on the whole entire life cycle and how it affects health is because people don't realize that when PVC is manufactured or the end of life, it does affect people's health. So they, they only really look at it like when it's in the use phase and they, and they don't realize that it's, um, it's actually affecting everybody um, on a grander level. Awesome, okay. So um, unfortunately we are all out of time, but I do have one last question please for Dan. Uh, this is from Nathan Turbrack. Uh, how is Mitrex using the industrial internet of things in the production process? track materials, content, and reduce production costs? I think that's a really good question. Yeah, great question. So uh, it is a smart system, essentially, that we install uh, into the buildings that tracks the exact output of uh, energy for the building. Uh, and it's, what we're able to do is uh, track and format exactly when the solar kicks in for the building, when it doesn't. Uh, and that's something that owners will find incredibly useful and especially in markets where there is peak energy pricing. Um, another thing that I didn't mention in my presentation that you might find interesting is that we're currently outfitting our own uh, factory actually with solar as well. So a big part of our production will be fueled by solar. Well, I mean, that would just make sense, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very, very much uh, to all our panelists and attendees today. I hope you learned a lot. I did, and I had a lot of fun. Um, if you have any follow-up questions, please go to folio.com and ask us, and we'll do our best to get answers. And uh, happy Earth Day, everyone. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by Folio. Folio is a product specification, procurement, and data management software for the AEC industry. With Folio, you can manage your budgeting, specification, purchasing, inventory, and product data processes from end-to-end. -end. Go to folio.com and ask us for a free demo.